0: Brothers and sisters, I'd ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. So we'll be looking at chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. So Galatians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Please then hear with me the inspired and inerrant word of God. that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Thus far, as a reading of God's Word. Now, I'm sure that many of you here this morning uh, can remember a significant event that took place back in uh, 1994. Many of you at that time maybe were believers yourselves, and so you'll remember the event. Uh, or others of you, perhaps like I, uh, only learned about the event in the proceeding years that followed. Uh, that event that I am describing is, is one in which prominent leaders from uh, the evangelical movement uh, got together with prominent leaders in the Catholic faith And together, they formed a document and signed one that is entitled uh, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, the Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. Now, this document that was signed, that I'm sure many of you are already familiar with, uh, was signed, and in doing so, what they did was, was affirm the common faith that Catholics and the Protestants shared with one another. In the document, in fact, it says that whoever believes and confesses that Jesus is Lord and Savior is a Christian. Thus, they concluded that Protestants and Catholics are brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, what motivated them, though, to get together to sign this document was the a desire to uh, as one unified group go out into the world and be a witness uh, for Christ to the ungodly uh, but now in saying that they each share in the common faith right that they both are christian uh, that they both are believers in the same lord and hold to the same gospel right what that meant was that as they went out into the world to witness the name of Christ, that they weren't to do so to one another because they've recognized that they don't belong to the target audience who needs the gospel because both of them, the Protestants and the Catholics together, shared in that same gospel. Now, in order to accomplish this feat, they obviously had to had to kind of sidestep the whole issue of justification by faith alone And in doing so, what I want us to see is that they undermined really the entire Reformation, didn't they? Even more so than that, as they gathered together to affirm their common faith that they might share in this common goal, they undermined Paul's missionary journey as well. They undermined everything that Paul stood for and, and all that we see Paul doing here in his letter to the Galatians. It's as if those men and especially, I mean, the Protestant ones, never read Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Because in doing what they did, they, they took the opposite stance that Paul took. Right? In doing what they did, they are in fact saying that, that Paul was wrong in taking such a, a strong tone against the Judaizers. Because of the Judaizers, like the Catholics, believed in Jesus, confessed Him to be both Lord and Savior, and yet deny that justification is by faith alone. I mean, the the Judaizers were Jewish Christians who said, yes, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Just like the Catholics who signed the document. And like the Catholics, though, who signed the document, the Judaizers, though, would also say, I too believe in justification by faith. But they wouldn't want to stop there. They would say, I believe in justification by faith, but something needs to be added to to Christ. But unlike the Protestant men who who signed on to this document affirming the faith of the Catholics, we see in our text today that Paul was unwilling to affirm the faith of the Judaizers. He refused to say that, that we share in a common faith. He refused to call them brothers. Why? Why though? Because an affirmation of the person of Christ is not sufficient. Hear me again. An affirmation in the person of Jesus Christ is not sufficient. In order to be a Christian, in order to say that you share in that common faith of the saints, not only must you affirm the person of Christ, but you likewise must affirm the work of Christ as well. Because the Gospel is not just about who Jesus is. The Gospel is about what Christ has done. And to deny then the sufficiency of Christ's work, that Jesus Christ has done it all, which is what the Catholics and the Judaizers do in denying justification by faith alone. They deny the the one and only true Gospel given to men by which sinners must be saved. So Paul was not going to go along with that. He was unwilling to stand side by side with the Judaizers. He was unwilling to say that they shared in the same Christ and that they shared in the same faith because they didn't based upon what they themselves believed and what they themselves preached. Right? The Judaizers, through the Gospel that they preached, made the grace of salvation found in Christ alone null and void. Right? meaningless to, to them and to their followers. And so Paul would not allow them to bear that Christian name because Paul's seen them as a part of the target, target audience. Right? Paul's seen them as a part of the pool of people who needed to hear the Gospel and thus be saved. Right? He wouldn't sign a document saying that although we have some differences, that the nature of our faith is the same. Because Paul understood that the nature of their faith was not the same because they did not believe in the same gospel. And so we see Paul fought tooth and nail to defend the gospel. Why? Because Paul understood this. That either you have the gospel or you have nothing. Right? Either you have the gospel or you have nothing. Either you have the gospel that was given to Paul, which he proclaims and which the church proclaims today. That you believe and receive and trust in and so be saved. Right? Or you have nothing. You have no new life. You have no Christ. You have no indwelling Spirit living inside of you. You have not the grace of salvation nor the fruit of sanctification. You have nothing. Nothing without the Gospel. right, Brothers and sisters, there are things that We can agree and disagree with with other brothers and sisters in the faith, aren't there? But justification by faith alone is not one of them. We can disagree on covenant theology. We can disagree on the mode of baptism. We can disagree on if the office of the papacy is the Antichrist or not. But we can't, we can't disagree on the Gospel and still belong to the same Christ and have the same faith. And so with that being said, as we turn our attention to our text then, as we look at Paul's journey to Jerusalem, we're going to call our first point this morning, Paul's purpose for traveling to Jerusalem. Paul's purpose for traveling to Jerusalem. Now, right away, we're told in verse 1, Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, a few uh, things to note. That in the book of Acts, there are at least uh, four trips that are recorded for us that Paul makes to Jerusalem. And so the question becomes for us, uh, what number trip are we discussing here in Galatians chapter 2? And there is debate, right? There is discussion over, is this Paul's second mission, is this Paul's second journey to Jerusalem, which would be recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 to chapter 12, verse 25? Um, Or is this Paul's third mission, third journey to Jerusalem, which is Acts 15 in the council of Jerusalem where he meets there? What I would like to submit to you, though, is that I think there's sufficient reason uh, to believe that what is being recorded for us here is Paul's second trip uh, to Jerusalem, which is recorded for us, as I said, in Acts 11 and in Acts 12. And I'm going to give you just, just three quick reasons why I think we ought to, to view this as Paul's second missionary journey and not his third. Uh, the first being this, uh, that we are told here in our text today that, that when Paul and Barnabas and Titus go up, they meet privately with just a few who are influential. Okay? Uh, if we know anything about Acts 15, that wasn't the case then, was it? Right? There you have a bunch of elders from different churches uh, coming together with the entire church of Jerusalem. So it wasn't a, a private meeting in Acts 15, but a very public one. And so I think that's that's one reason why we ought to see this uh, as Paul's second trip and not his third. Uh, additionally, here in our text, Paul tells us that the reason he went up was because of divine revelation. Now, we're not told how. Did God speak to him and tell him to go to Jerusalem? Did God reveal it to him in a dream or a vision? Right? We're not told, but, but, but we are told it was divine revelation. But we know, because we're told in Acts 15, that the reason he goes up to the Jerusalem church is because the church sent him up there to go. Right? And so, uh, the, the manner in which he was sent are different from what he describes in Galatians 2 and in Acts 15. And then and then thirdly, and I think probably the, uh, the best argument for why what Paul is describing as his second trip to Jerusalem and not his third, is if Paul is writing about his third trip and the issue is circumcising, circumcising Gentiles, don't you think Paul would have brought up the decree of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15? He could have easily put an end to the debate, couldn't he? He said, when I went up to speak to them, there was this decree that we made. Why are you listening to the the Judaizers now? This has all been a settled matter. Well, it makes sense that he doesn't address the Jerusalem Council and he doesn't tell the churches of Galatia about the decree because it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't taken place yet. Which means that when Paul says, after 14 years I went up to Jerusalem, he's probably thinking about from the time of his conversion. So from the time of his conversion to the second trip to Jerusalem, it had been 14 years. Right? This is the same way that he speaks about his first trip to Jerusalem. Back in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. If you remember there, he says this, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained there for 15 uh days. So there he says, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. Well, three years since what? Since his conversion. And so in chapter two, verse one, as he begins that exact same way. Then after fourteen years I went up to Jerusalem. We ought to think of that fourteen years from his conversion, or eleven years from his first trip to Jerusalem. Uh, remembering that Paul is probably converted in the year thirty three. Uh, so that Paul would have made his second journey to Jerusalem when he was about 46 or 47. Um, he wrote this epistle in about 48. And the Jerusalem Council happens in about 49 or 50 A.D. Okay? Now in verse 2, we are told, as I said earlier, that Paul went up because a revelation had been set before him, though privately before those who seemed influential, the Gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul tells us he went up to Jerusalem to make sure that he and the apostles in Jerusalem were united. Right? That's why he goes up there. To make sure that they are united. But what is it that he is um, concerned that they are united about or around? It's the Gospel, isn't it? Right? Because if your goal... Is missions to the world together, that's something that you have to get right. You have to make sure that you are proclaiming the same message so that one group isn't saying one thing and another group saying another thing. And so Paul goes up to Jerusalem to make sure they are in total agreement about the message that is being declared. Paul wants to make sure that the, the Jewish converts were not under the false assumption that you had to add Moses to Jesus in order to be in covenant with God. And then that they weren't going behind Paul's back and pressuring the Gentile converts to do that very same thing. That's what he means when he says he wanted to make sure he was not running in vain. He wanted to make sure that as he proclaims the gospel, Jewish converts aren't coming behind him undercutting the gospel that he's proclaiming. right, Undoing the work that he is doing. Right the church can't fulfill its mission, brothers and sisters, if Peter and Paul are preaching two different messages, right two messages to to two different peoples, one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles, doesn't form unity, does it, as the gospel was designed to do, but rather it makes two peoples right It causes division, even more so, it causes confusion, doesn't it, especially to those Gentile believers, as the Jewish converts are coming up to them and saying, well the apostles in Jerusalem are teaching us something else. And so the, the Gentile converts are confused now. What is it that I ought to believe? And so Paul's purpose in going to Jerusalem then was to, to make sure that they are all united around the Gospel. But Paul then also goes up to Jerusalem in order that he might fight for the Gospel as well. Right? He goes to Jerusalem to fight for the Gospel. Right? To make sure that what is being declared was freedom in Christ. And that the message that was being preached was not one that was going to bring people back under the bondage of the law. And thankfully, we, as we read our text today, we see that, that they were all in agreement. We read in verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Right? We can only imagine that as Paul goes up there, that his question to, the, to this small group of, of men who are influential, that he meets privately with, you can only imagine that he goes up to them and he says, is it Christ alone who saves? Tell me, brothers, is it is it Christ alone who saves? And what we see is that Titus is a test case of sorts, isn't he? Right, Titus is a test case. Right? What would the determination be? And what we see is that he was not circumcised. Now perhaps that was Paul's whole motivation in bringing Titus with him. To kind of bring a test case before the apostles to see what they're going to do. Are they going to say that this Greek needs to be circumcised or not? He wants to see how are they going to respond? Are they going to buckle under the pressure maybe of Jewish converts who believe that you need to add Moses to Jesus? Because Titus has already received Christ, hasn't he? And so now Paul kind of waits in limbo as he asks them, Right. Is it Christ alone who saves? Wondering, what is the determination going to be? Right? Do they view Titus as needing something else alongside Christ in order to be viewed in covenant with God? Or is the cross enough? Right. Was the cross enough? And the answer was that the cross is enough, wasn't it? And this is an important statement that we see being made in our text today. Because under the old covenant, that wouldn't have been the case, would it? Right, under the old covenant, right, if a foreigner comes into the the people of Israel, they would have had to, to bear the mark, right, if it was a male of that people in order to be a member of that covenant. Right, we read that in Genesis chapter 17 verse 12, and God speaks to Abraham making that covenant with him. He says, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner, who is not your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. But here's the difference now. Don't we see it? That in the New Covenant, it declares that Jesus has come and that Jesus has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf so that there is nothing more for you and I to do. Right? It, it reveals to us that our works are not necessary to entitle us to justification before God because one is justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And think about it, brothers and sisters. What, what Christ offers to you and I in the Gospel is perfect righteousness. It's perfect righteousness. How can what you and I do in our obedience to the law of God stack up to that? Right? How can it stack up? to the perfect righteousness of Christ. How can it compare? Right? Our best works, even as believers, are tainted with sin. Right? Our, our very best works that we do are still works done by sinners. Right? How can these works be equivalent or of equal worth or equal value to the works of Christ who knew no sin Himself? Right? How can they be? Right? How could our sin-stained obedience be received by God for our justification when God says, I demand perfection? How could it be? It can't be. Right? And so it's the height of arrogance right, to believe that our works could in some way help to justify us before God. Right? That's folly. Right? We need to understand that if we want to be justified before God, then we need to lay bare ourselves, let go of all that we are, and cleave to Christ and Christ alone. And thankfully, Timothy, or Titus, as a test case, demonstrates that all of the apostles agreed with this. But why has this remained, though, such an issue? Right? Fourteen years now, after Paul has been proclaiming the Gospel, well, Paul tells us it's because false brothers have now crept into the church. Look with me at verses 4 and 5, please. Paul says, yet because of false brothers secretly crept in, or brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This leads us to our second point then this morning, which we'll call the agenda of Paul's opponents. The agenda of Paul's opponents. Now, I want us to see something right away. That is, how does Paul address these brothers? Right? What does he call them? He calls the Judaizers false brothers. Right? False brothers. He recognizes that their differences were not of a nature, that they were fellow Christians with Paul. Right? They weren't true brothers who maybe were just an heir and needed to be corrected. Right? They weren't ignorant brothers who just needed to be kind of taught and brought back into the faith. And why do we know this? Because listen to how Paul describes what they were doing. They were secretly brought in. They came in to to spy out our freedom. And so what do we see about these Judaizers? They were not innocent in their intentions, were they? Nor were they ignorant of what it is that they were doing. They were calculated in their efforts. right? The Judaizers had had a strategy. Now they certainly believed that they were right, didn't they? They thought that what they were doing was right, that what they believed was right. But look at how they're going about convincing others. Right? They're, they're using that by whatever means necessary approach. Even if it means being deceitful. Right? They are acting like undercover agents in the church. They said and did what they had to do in order to look the Christian part and to fit in. But what was their intention? To spy out the freedom that they have in Christ and bring them into slavery. So let us see, brothers and sisters, that these Judaizers were not honorable men. right? They did not enter the church's open books, ready to tell everyone what they believed. But rather, they came in, right, secretly, concealing their agenda, trying to make friends, be buddy-buddy with people, causing them to, to trust them. Deceiving the saints, though. Because these men, these Judaizers, were not freedom fighters. But they came in the church to be slave traders, didn't they? They came in the church to be slave traders. They were agents for the other side. Oftentimes you'll hear in the news about, about spies, right, who infiltrate organizations or governments. And they do so with a with an evil purpose. Right? They aren't on the side of the nation that they are spying on, right? but they are on the side of our enemies. Maybe those that we are at odds with, those that we are at war at. And that's what these men are doing here. Right? They serve the purposes of the devil. They're on his side because who else wants to bring you under bondage but he, the devil? Right? The devil loves to bring us under bondage. The devil loves it when he can get professing Christians who come to church to be brought back under bondage. right? To, to believe that Christ is yours all the while while being deceived. Because you unwillingly have given up the gospel in order that you might be justified through the works of the law. And this is what the Judaizers are trying to do. Right? They're trying to take away the liberty of the saints through adding the law to the gospel. And circumcision was just one way in which they did that. Right? The Judaizers wanted to bring them under all of the ceremonial law, really. But we need to see that to be brought back under the law is to be made a slave. Why? Well, because the law with respect to justification is antithetical to the Gospel. Right? The law with respect to our justification is antithetical to the Gospel. Yeah, I'll tell you in, in what ways. The law informs us of who we ought to be in our manner of life. But it doesn't tell us how to become that person. The Gospel does. This is why the law is a means of bondage for those who seek to be justified by it. Because the law causes you to bring something to the table that you cannot provide. And it's the devil and the Judaizers and false teachers in churches today who want to make you feel like you have it inside of you to do. Even though we don't. But it's the Gospel, though, that reminds us that we have nothing. And it's the Gospel in Christ that gives us all that the law demands. Right? The law demands perfection of you. But it gives you no help to accomplish it. The Gospel tells us that we have all that we need furnished to us by Christ. The law teaches us that we have to pay what we owe before we receive the right to eternal life. But the Gospel tells us that Christ has already paid it all for us so that the eternal life that He has procured even while we yet live is already ours. You see, brothers and sisters, the the Judaizers and false teachers today who affirm this kind of teaching do not understand with respect to justification that the law condemns. The law condemns. The law cannot justify you. It's the gospel that justifies. Right? The law only wounds and terrifies, but it's the gospel that brings comfort and casts out all fear. See, brothers and sisters, that the the law is a house of bondage. But the gospel opens the prison doors and lets us free. The devil, when he came, he came to bring about your Slavery in mind. But when Christ came into the world, right, he came to relinquish, right, the power of the devil over us and set us free. And what is, what are we we told in John chapter 8? If you are free in Christ, you are free indeed. Right, this is why Paul sees this fight as so important. Because Paul understands what adopting a gospel law or a Jesus plus Moses, or an Old Covenant plus New Covenant message will do. It will result in slavery. It will be a removal of your freedom. But God desires that we find freedom in Christ through the Gospel. But the devil and his allies are looking to destroy your freedom by turning the Gospel into something terrible. We need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that the, the devil loves it. When you obey the law out of dread of the wrath of God that's revealed to you in the law of God. Rather than obeying the law out of a a heart that loves God because what he has done for you in Christ. Right? The devil loves it, brothers and sisters. When we constantly are viewing God as this terrible, avenging judge instead of thinking about God constantly as our loving, caring, compassionate, merciful, holy Father. right? The the devil loves it when the righteous requirements of the law are always set before our eyes. Instead of setting before our eyes the infinite righteousness of Christ, and the forgiveness of sin that's offered to us all in the Gospel. Right? This is why Paul says in verse 5, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the Gospel might be preserved for you. To have yielded, or to have circumcised Titus, would, would have been to yield right, to the false brothers. It would have been to, to yield to the Judaizers. This is why Timothy in the New Testament can be circumcised. And Titus is not. Because the debate surrounding Titus is, is circumcision necessary for one to find salvation. Is circumcision necessary for one to be made a member in God's covenant? And so when that is the question, the answer must always be no. It must always be no. And so they weren't willing to do anything to, to even give off the slightest impression that the answer could be yes. And so they were willing to offend the Jews they're willing to offend the Jewish converts. They're willing to offend all in not circumcising Titus, then to be concerned about offending others, and then circumcising Titus, and in doing so, injuring and harming the gospel. Right? We need to see that the issue at hand is not one of eating and drinking. Right? In scripture, we're told to not offend a brother if they are uh, of weaker conscience, right? We do not eat or drink something in front of them, so as not to wound them? That's not what this debate is about here. Neither is this debate even about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I have become all things to all men that I might save some. No, this has to do with how one is justified. And if you are saying anything has to be added to Christ, we must not yield for a moment in doing it. And that's what we see that that Paul does. He, He refuses to give in in the slightest to the Judaizers here. Because Paul refuses to do any damage to the Gospel. He refuses to, any, to do any damage to, to those who, who were hearing the Gospel proclaimed. He didn't want to give off any confusion by saying we, we preached Christ and Christ crucified and yet we still got to circumcise Titus. But let us also see this, brothers and sisters, that no matter how many years it is, uh, 14 years or 1,400 years, uh, you will always have false brothers uh, who creep into the church to try to spy out our faith and to, and to snatch away the liberty that we have in Christ. Uh, this is why it is so vitally important that we uh, remain vigilant over the gospel, that we protect the gospel at all costs. Uh, this is one benefit for why uh, for having a confession of faith like we have, isn't it? Because right? it, it puts a fence around orthodoxy. So that it's more easy to spy out uh, men and women who come into the church, right? Who don't hold to the to the faith of the saints and what has been believed throughout all the ages. But we can't defend the gospel uh, unless brothers and sisters we first know it, right? And so we ourselves must know the gospel. And in knowing the gospel, you have to cause us to love the gospel. And when we love the gospel, we have to we ought to have great zeal for the gospel. And a part of that great zeal for the Gospel is, is preaching the Gospel right? so that those in the pew might likewise hear and understand. And in those times and circumstances in which people rebel against the Gospel or try to distort the Gospel or pervert or twist the Gospel, then God has given us other means to deal with, with false brothers in the church right? through, through church discipline. And that's something we, we have to, to, to use when necessary. Uh, This then leads us to our third and our final point then this morning, which is Paul sending off. Uh, Paul sending off. Paul has come for a purpose. That purpose has been dealt with through his satisfaction and now it's time for him to leave. Look with me starting at verse 6, please. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Uh, God shows no partiality. that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so we see right away it it, it can appear as if Paul is disparaging uh, the other apostles, can't it? By how he how he speaks about them. Uh, but I want us to see that that's not what Paul's doing here. Right? He's not disparaging his brothers. Um, what we need to understand is that the Judaizers have put, have put the Jerusalem apostles on a pedestal, haven't they? Right? They've kind of raised them up. And so... Paul is simply stating here that he's on equal footing with them. Right? He's on equal footing with, with them. They have, they have both been sent out just to two different groups. Right? One to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. And just as Christ taught the apostles while he was with them, Christ likewise taught Paul during his ministry as well. Perhaps maybe there's even some sarcasm here uh, as Paul speaks, because as the Judaizers are are lifting up uh, the names of the Jerusalem apostles. Paul is saying, they added nothing to me. In fact, they agreed with me. They didn't change a thing that I said. In fact, they simply acknowledged what God has, has done in me and is doing for me as an apostle just like they are. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, it doesn't really matter what the false believers thought about Paul or the other apostles, did it? What what mattered is is what the message was that they were entrusted to declare. Right? What what mattered was who was it that entrusted them to declare it? And what they had been entrusted with was the one and only Gospel. Who they had been entrusted by was the one and only living God. And there was mutual recognition of this fact between the the brothers. This is why he says in verse 8, For he who worked through Peter in his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Which resulted in what? It resulted in uh, Peter and James and John extending the right hand of fellowship to uh, Paul and to Barnabas. Oh, what a handshake that was, wasn't it, brothers and sisters? That was a a historic handshake between those men. Something of, of far greater significance than what was done in 1994 with that signed document. This handshake solidified that they were in unity in their mission to both Gentiles and Jews. Their handshake symbolized their agreement in the Gospel. Their handshake symbolized their partnership in Christ. It it symbolized the, the singular focus on declaring Christ and Christ crucified to the nations in order that they might come to faith in Christ alone and be justified through that faith. But before Paul departs, there's one final request that is made, isn't there? In verse 10, only they ask us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Now specifically, what poor are they talking about? Talking about the poor in the Jerusalem church. That's the poor that they're talking about. In this day and age, when you become a Christian... Especially in this country, you don't lose much, do you? But in the first century, especially if you're living maybe in Jerusalem amongst all the Jews, if you are a Jew who now converts to Christianity, you can lose a lot. You can lose your job. You can lose your means to accumulate goods right, and, and, and monies. And so Paul says that this was already something he was committed to doing because Paul understood Right, that uh, that to lay hold to Christ, right, to take up your cross and follow Him, oftentimes means right that you lose out on on temporal and earthly goods. Right, it was Paul who said in 1 Corinthians chapter one verse twenty six, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Right, so Paul already understood that many who were being saved were already poor to begin with. They didn't have much. They weren't men's with, men with great means. I mean, Think about the apostles. I mean, many of them are fishermen. Right? Jesus was someone who did not have great means. This is why Luther said, next to the proclamation of the Gospel, it is the task of a good pastor to be mindful of the poor. Right? That's what Martin Luther said. Uh, we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that... Uh, we need to be mindful of the poor. We need to think about and consider the needy. A good gospel-preaching church thinks about others, not just themselves. The poor within our midst, but also the poor and other like-minded gospel-preaching churches around this world. And to aid those people is to show our unity with them. To aid them is to show our love towards them. A a love that Christ has shown to, to poor sinners like you and I. And so let us remember, brothers and sisters, that we are not to just bless people with our lips, but we need to bless them with our pocketbooks as well. All right? One of the ways in which we do that is through our giving and our offering each week. All right? Knowing that that money, is, uh, some of that is distributed to, to, to the poor. Right? It's distributed to, to the needy and it's something that we all need to be a part of. It's something we all are called to be engaged in. And that's exactly what Paul did throughout his own ministry. We have many accounts of Paul collecting money for the Jerusalem church. Think of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Think of Romans chapter 15 verses 26 and 27. Acts chapter 11 verse 27 to 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. All accounts of Paul making sure that, that money is being collected for the needy in these churches. Now Paul could have easily told the apostles, yeah, I'll do it and never do it. Couldn't I think a lot of times, as the minister proclaims God's Word to you, you hear something and you say, I gotta do that. And we never do it. Or you hear it proclaimed and you say, I'm gonna do it, you start to do it, and then after time you forget and you stop. Brothers and sisters, let us, let this be a reminder to us to, to practice what we hear. Right? Seeing that although when we give to the church, or when we do things that God commands, it doesn't add to our justification, but it does bear evidence that you are a true believer in Christ. Because a Christian has concern for their brothers and sisters. A Christian loves their neighbors. A Christian is not just a, a hearer of the word, but a doer. And they are willing to give up with anything. They are willing to, to part with their own goods and their own monies for the benefit of their brothers and sisters in Christ. But I hope as we learn today that although we can be willing to part with many things, there is one thing that we must never be willing to part with and that is the Gospel. there's never be willing to part with the Gospel. We'll conclude then with this final quote Uh, from uh, Martin Luther. He says this, We can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the Gospel, our faith, and Jesus Christ. And that is it. Let us pray. O oh, gracious and merciful Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. Uh, we thank You, Lord, that You have uh, not kept us in the dark, but that You have revealed Your Gospel to us, and that You, Father, this very day are protecting us by the power of Your Spirit uh, from false brothers and from and false teachers who would look to spy out our freedom in Christ. Lord, we ask this very day that You would help us to to think more about uh, the law gospel distinction, uh, to think more about uh, how it is that we are justified, uh, that you would help us, Lord, to be a discerning people, uh, that we would be able to judge rightly between your your word, that we would be able to judge rightly as, as ministers proclaim your word on what is true and what is false, what is good and what should we let go uh, Lord, we pray that that through the preaching of the word this day, uh, that you would continue to to conform us to the image of your Son. That Lord, the words that have been proclaimed today, Lord, we ask that would not fall on on deaf ears, but that rather they would be uh, implanted deep into our hearts and deep into our minds, and that it wouldn't just be theoretical knowledge, but Lord, you would move this uh, head knowledge into practice. And that, Lord, we would exercise ourselves in the things that we have learned. That we would demonstrate uh, our love for You uh, through our love for others. And so, Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.